As Sean said, uh, my name is Kevin Kutzel. I'm the head of the missions team here at Freshwater, and uh, it is really always a privilege to come and speak to you today. We're going to talk about missions today, next week, and then on July 9th, J.D. and Emily Duick from Senegal, who we have a partnership, will be with us. And um, on July 8th, we are having a breakfast with them right here at Freshwater. And if you're available, uh, I would encourage you to sign up. We have a sign up right in the hallway after the service. Um, we're hoping for a great turnout to hear about their ministry and what God is doing. Um, let me open with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise and worship your holy name. Lord, we are here because you have called us, you have saved us, and you have redeemed us. Lord, we praise you for the life you have given to us and for your spirit that dwells in us. And Lord, I pray for your spirit to use me as your vessel. Lord, that as I bring forth the word, Lord, that it will speak truth. And I pray that all of our hearts will be open to hear your word and to respond to it, that we may be obedient servants, Lord, and we may listen, hear, and do your will. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. September 27, 2011, I was driving by the Fifth Third Bank in Medina, and I got a phone call from my sister. She said, Kevin, if you want to see Grandma again, you better get down here. Down here was South Florida. Now, my 94-year-old grandmother had been slowly dying. It was not a great surprise, but it was still unexpected. I went home, booked the first flight I could out of Cleveland the next morning, flew down to South Florida, and by 11 o'clock, I'm walking into her nursing home. I had no idea if she was dead or alive, conscious, unconscious, but I went in there. I was the only one. My parents were still in, on vacation. They were coming back from Georgia. I went in there. She looked at me. She recognized me. And for the next 20 minutes, we talked. Now, it's the only time I've been at the bedside of a dying person. But I will tell you one thing. You're not talking about the weather. You are talking about the things that probably you should have been talking about for the last 20 years. You're talking about the relationship, the fond memories, and any forgiveness. And I won't go into any details, but let me tell you, it is very meaningful, it's very powerful, and it's very intimate. It's what you want that person to remember before you leave. My grandmother died later that day. The very last words of Jesus are recorded in Matthew, uh, Luke, and Acts. And we're going to look at Acts 1.8. It's the very last words that he gave to his disciples as he ascended into heaven. It's also the verse of fresh water. It's also the verse of our denomination. Acts 1.8, Jesus brings his disciples together and he says to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, in, in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Basically, Jesus said to them as he departed, he said, I am giving you the baton. You have been part of my ministry. You have heard my words. 
The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. He's going to fill you. He's going to give you power. And you are going to be my witnesses. As I leave, here is the baton. You are now the faithful ones. We sit here today, 2017, because 80 generations from the time of Jesus until now have taken this baton and have been faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. 80 generations. We are the 81st generation, but it is not by coincidence. We are here because there have been 80 generations that have gone before us, taking the baton, proclaiming the gospel, giving their lives for Christ. We're going to talk about a few of those generations here this morning. We know the first generation pretty well because it's recorded in the book of Acts for us. A couple of things I want to bring out in the book of Acts real quick. In Acts chapter 8, persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, and immediately the church is scattered up to, uh, through Judea and Samaria. So immediately, some of Jesus' words are coming true. The church is already reaching Samaria and Judea by Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 11 is a very critical chapter because at that point the gospel reaches Antioch. Antioch is a very key city that we're going to talk about this morning several different times. Uh, but it's the first time the gospel reaches the Gentiles or the Greeks. It also reaches the Hellenistic Jews. Antioch is very critical because it's right where Turkey and Syria come together. It's right where the east meets the west. It's where the old Silk Road traveling from Rome all the way to China, where all the merchants used to travel. We heard Marco Polo. There were many merchants before Marco Polo going east and west. We know the gospel went west. It's pretty well recorded in the, in the New Testament. We're going to talk about that for a few minutes, and then we'll talk about the church going east. So we know that Paul goes west. He goes to Rome. He may have gone to Spain, according to Romans 15. Um, we know that he passes the baton on to Timothy, who becomes the pastor in Ephesus. John, the disciple of Jesus, passes the baton on to uh, Polycarp. Not a name that we hear about in the New Testament, but Polycarp is the pastor of a church in Smyrna. You may have heard of Smyrna. It's actually in Revelations chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. It's one, of the church, it's one of the seven churches that John writes about in Revelations. It's one of the good churches. Okay? It's one of the churches that was persecuted. It was poor in the eyes of the world. But according to Revelations, it was rich in the eyes of God. The pastor of that church was Polycarp. He was there for 50 years. When he was 86 years old, the proconsul of the Roman Empire decides that he wants to persecute the church in Antioch. I mean Smyrna. He wants to persecute the church in Smyrna, and he decides to bring Polycarp to the Colosseum. Now, what he really wants, he doesn't want to kill Polycarp. He wants him to deny his faith, to deny Christ. So he brings Polycarp in, and he says, and this is recorded by the ch church historian Eusebius. He says to Polycarp, swear, and I will set you free. Deny Christ. And Polycarp says, for 86 years, I have been his servant. And he has never done me wrong. How could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I have wild beasts, said the proconsul. If you make light of the beasts, I will have you destroyed by fire. Polycarp answered, The fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing 
about. The fire of the judgment to come and of eternal punishment. The fire reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? Do what you want. You know, as I read these words, I'm reminded what the writer of Hebrews said, who, who wrote about the same time this was occurring in church history. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 38, we read the following. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. The world was not worthy of them. About the same time, Emperor Trajan, who was around 120 AD, decides that he also wants to persecute the church in Antioch. So St. Ignatius is the bishop of the church in Antioch, and he calls, he, he, he demands that St. Ignatius come to Rome, where he's going to basically take him to the Colosseum. St. Ignatius sees this as a wonderful opportunity to proclaim Christ. He has rich friends in Rome that want to spare his life, want to basically pay off the emperor Trajan, but he insists to his friends, no, don't do it. This is an opportunity for me to proclaim Christ. So as, as Ignatius goes from Antioch and makes his way around the Aegean Sea into Italy and down to Rome, the Romans allow him to stop in every village where he proclaims Christ. They all know he's on his way to his death. He's a tremendous witness, and thousands come to Christ. He said, I know as a martyr, I will see the baton passed. I will see Christ proclaimed. Don't stop it from happening. The patriarch Tertullian said at this time, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The Romans quickly learned that they were not going to get anywhere by putting Christians to death in the Colosseum. As the Roman Empire spread to the north and to the west, Christianity went with it. We know for a fact that there was churches established in Britannia, United Kingdom, by 200 A.D. By 250 A.D., there were already one million Christians in the Roman Empire. One million. And then it expanded. This is before Christianity was legal. It exploded at this point. They say that every decade after 250 A.D., Christianity spread by 40%. By 300 A.D., they recorded there were 6 million Christians in the empire. And by 350 A.D., there were 34 million Christians. Now, there's a number of reasons why the church exploded. One of the reasons was that the Christians were known for their love and were known for caring of the sick. In 250 AD, a huge smallpox epidemic broke out in the Roman Empire, and it recorded that it killed 30% of the population. But the Christians were the ones that cared for the sick. They cared for their own. The pagans would flee. And so as they fled, they wouldn't be exposed to smallpox, but they would take the virus with them, and they would spread it and kill all those around them. The Christians would stay. They would have enough exposure to be basically immunized uh, from it. And then also, they would 30% 30, 30 of the people that died, but the Christians, they would bring many of those that they cared for, survived. And so the Christian population grew as the Roman population, the pagan population, shrunk. The gospel not only spread to the west and to the north, but it also spread from the north to the south. 
On March 17th of every year, we have this holiday called St. Patrick's Day. It's where we act stupid. It's where we dress in green, drink green beer, go to parades, and know nothing about St. Patrick. And I absolutely abhor, abhor it because St. Patrick is probably one of the greatest figures in the history of the church. It would be hard-pressed to find somebody who had accomplished as much as Patrick did. Patrick was born in 389 in England. When he was, he was born in a Christian family, but he did not become a Christian at this point. When he was 19 years old, he was captured and sold as a slave and taken over to Ireland. He was there for about seven years when he got a vision to go down to the coast. There would be a ship. He could get on the ship, and he could escape. He followed the, the vision. He went, got on the ship. He went back to England. He was there for about seven years when all of a sudden he got a very vivid dream. And in this dream, he said, quote, he receives a letter from a man. He opens up the letter and it says, quote, please, holy boy, come and walk among us again. Their cry pierced to my very heart and I could read no more, and I awoke. At 43 years old, remember, this is basically 420 A.D., 43 years old, he returns to Ireland. Now, I don't know if I mentioned, he did become a Christian in Ireland, okay, in, in, when he was a slave. So he now returns to Ireland as a missionary, what we call today an international worker. And in the next 15 years, it is unbelievable what he accomplishes. He, verse, he goes and he meets with the king, meets with the tribal leaders. Ireland was broken into tribes. But in the next 15 years, he establishes over 200 churches and baptizes over 100,000 believers. They said it was hard, you'd be hard-pressed to find a non-believer in Ireland after those 15 years. But... Even more important, he established a number of monasteries. Now, we hear the word monastery, we think of a dry place where people go, aesthetics, who, who you know, do nothing but fast and pray. These were, these were scholarly learning centers. And the main purpose of these monasteries was to teach and disciple people how to share Jesus Christ. And for the next five hundred years, these monasteries would pump out thousands of missionaries that would go around the world. They went, they started in England, and they evangelized all of England. They went to Scotland. Then they went into Western Europe. They went and evangelized Gaul, which is present-day France. They went to the Franks, which is Germany. They went all the way through Switzerland, and all the way down to Italy. Then they we even went up to Iceland, they covered the entire Western Europe. A church historian said the following, there was a passion for foreign missions in the impetuous eagerness of the Irish believers, burning with love for Christ, fearing no peril, shunning no hardship. They went everywhere with the gospel. Probably the most famous of these missionaries was Columban, who went he first went over to England and Scotland, and then he went down to Gaul, which is France. And he, when he was in France, he established 60 monasteries, 60 
learning centers by, his, by himself. And he saw thousands of people come to Christ. By 860 AD, the monk Benedictine wrote in a letter regarding the Irish influence, and he was in France. He said the following, How can we forget Ireland, the island where the Son of Faith rose for us, and whence the brilliant rays of so great a light have reached us? Well, we know the church spread west, it spread north, but it also spread to the east. You know, we talked about Antioch being on the crossroads or where the east meets the west. Well, the, we know as Paul was going west, several of the disciples and the early believers went east. And we know for a fact that, in, that the church was established in India by the second century. All the way in South India, there was a number of churches by the second century A.D. By 635 A.D., we know for a fact there was a church in the capital city of China, which at that time was Chang'an. And the emperor of China, Tai Zong, wrote the following regarding the Christians there. He said, they are a mysterious, wonderful, spontaneous, producing perception, establishing essentials for salvation of creatures and the benefit of man. So, 635 A.D., we have churches all the way from China to Iceland. Twenty-four generations. And they have reached the ends of the earth, as far as man knew it. I believe if Jesus would have came back at that time, in 635 A.D., he would have said, well done, good and faithful servants. But that's not the end of the story. One more person I want to talk about before we get into the modern era. Bishop Timothy, who we absolutely never hear about in Western evangelism, was, was incredible in the East. Bishop Timothy was the bishop of Seleucia, which is now near present-day Baghdad, Iraq. And the church in Iraq, they say, was twice as strong and numerous as the Roman church was that there was thousands and millions of believers. But Timothy, he was in charge of 85 bishops. He was an incredible administrator, but he also had a passion for evangelism. And he established a number of monasteries that were committed to evangelizing the East. He himself personally evangelized and saw the Turkish king come to Christ. And he was committed to going to Tibet and also to China. And he is responsible for thousands of people coming to Christ, millions of people coming to Christ all the way through Tibet and China. They say that um, as the merchants would travel east, there were so many proclaiming Christ that in the Syriac language, the word for merchant became synonymous with evangelist. By 1000 AD, there is recorded that there were 20 million Christians in Central Asia. 20 million Christians in Central Asia. Something we never hear about in church history by 1000 AD. And there were another 5 million in North Africa, mostly the Coptic Christians in Egypt. So let's talk about why we are here as Freshwater today. We as Freshwater are part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. 
The Christian Missionary Alliance was founded by a man called A.B. Simpson. He was a Canadian, and he was a very, very eloquent, very well-known preacher who at 21 took his first pastorate in Hamilton, Canada. He was there for about seven years when he felt the call of God to go to Louisville, Kentucky. Now, Louisville, Kentucky at that point, um, this is back in the 1870s, was a very Gentile. It was still sort of recovering from the Civil War. He was uh, very instrumental in helping through that Reconstruction. But it was a very Southern, very respectable church. And after being there for a few years, he was very unsettled with this because he thought, you know, everybody acts very well, but there's not a lot of passion for, re- for proclaiming the gospel, for passing on the baton. And during this time, he gets a vision, a dream, that's very similar to St. Patrick's. He said, uh, quote, I was awakened one night from sleep, trembling with a strange and solemn sense of God's overshadowing power, and on my soul was burning the remembrance of a strange dream which I had just had. I was sitting in a vast auditorium, surrounded by millions of people, All the Christians in the world seemed to be there, and on the platform was a great multitude of faces. They were not speaking, but in mute anguish were wringing their hands, and their faces wore an expression that I could never forget. I had not been thinking of the heathen world, but as I awoke with that vision on my mind, I trembled with the Holy Spirit, and I threw myself on my knees, and every fiber of my being answered, Yes, Lord, I will go. The only problem was is his wife did not share his enthusiasm for going. He wanted to go to China, but his wife was not so sure. So what they ended up doing was going to New York City because he felt in New York City he would be better off to reach the immigrants that were pouring into our country. So they went to New York City and Again, he faced the same opposition. He was out trying to reach the immigrants, trying to proclaim Christ, and the church wanted him in the building. So he was there for about two years when finally he just had had enough. And he basically resigns his position. His wife is thinking he's absolutely insane, resigning from this respectable church with a very good salary, And he decides that he's going to form a mission society in which he brings together all the Christians and try and really proclaims the need to reach the world with the gospel. So in in 1884, he has his first meeting. Actually, it was 1883, he has his first meeting. Seven people show up. But then, because of the enthusiasm and the power of the Holy Spirit, suddenly the hall is overflowing with people interested in overseas missions. In 1884, the first five men go out to the Congo, which is the heartland of Africa. Now, in that time, Africa was known as the white man's graveyard. The Christian Missionary Alliance wasn't even founded yet, but in 1884, five men go out to the Congo. Four of them returned, but the Christian Missionary Alliance had had already set the precedent and and started sending wave after wave after wave to the Congo. Now, at that time, nine out of ten people, when they went to uh, Africa, they didn't live, okay? You didn't come back, and you didn't survive. 
But we sent wave after wave after wave. By 1892, we had 150 missionaries in 15 fields in eight years. Now, I had the privilege of being in the Congo in the summer of 1988. Remember, the first five men had gone in, in 1883. They, so the Congo had just celebrated their 100th centennial celebration after I got there. And it was unbelievable to see how huge the church was in the Congo, the CMA church. Hundreds of churches, hundreds of thousands of believers, much bigger than the church was here in the U.S. In 100 years, those missionaries that took the baton, spread the gospel, planted the seed, saw the church established. They gave their lives, but they saw the church established. One of the most vivid memories I have of being in the Congo was I was, <clears throat> I was going with Paul Keitel, who was the uh, field director, and we went way up into the mountains, way up. I mean, I, mean, I, I thought for sure nobody had ever gone up here before right? Twelve hours up into the mountains. And I remember we got there, it was already nighttime, you know, ten o'clock at night, and I got out, and the thing that I, the vivid memory I have is I looked into the sky, there was, there was no artificial light. I mean, it was black. And I looked up into the skies, and I saw the heavens like I had never seen them before. Just millions of stars. We went to the church service, I went to sleep in the dirt hut, I got up the next morning, thanks to the roosters running around. I get up, I walk out. Again, I had not seen it in the light before. I'm walking around, I go around to the church, I go around to the side, and there's a little graveyard with these tombstones. And I thought, well, that's strange for Congo to see these tombstones. I look at the tombstones, and I realize I'm reading the tombs of our very first missionaries the Christian Missionary Alliance had ever sent to the Congo. Now, I don't know how that would have struck you, but I thought, I, I was frozen. I thought, I'm standing on holy ground. These men and women, these families, gave their lives for this church. And the church was planted, and it's thriving. The Alliance has sent a lot of people, and it's seen a lot of people give their lives. But that's not the point. The point is, is that the church has been established around the world. Today, we have 700 alliance workers in 70 different countries. 700 alliance workers in 70 countries. We are the 81st generation. It's our turn. 80 generations have come before us. And now they are handing us the baton. And they are saying, take it and run the race. You know, I quoted Hebrews chapter 11 a few minutes ago. If you've got your Bibles with me, I want to end with Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Who are the great cloud of witnesses here? 
I believe it's those who have gone before us. It's those who are talked about in Hebrews chapter 11. Remember, there's no, this, the chapter is an artificial break. It's talked about all those who have given their lives and who have persecuted, passing the baton to generation after generation, that Jesus Christ may be proclaimed, that his salvation may be known from the ends of the earth, giving their lives. And now they're looking to us to say, can you make it to the 82nd generation? Will the 81st generation be faithful in taking this gospel to the ends of the earth? To taking it to your Judea, your Samaria, to taking it across the street, to inviting your friends to Alpha. Can and will you be found faithful? Or will it die at the 81st generation? We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that we may run the race marked out for us with perseverance. That's what the baton is, right? You take the baton and you run with it. You are part of a team. You are called to do your job. You are called to be faithful. You are called to be obedient. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. How many of us are willing to take the baton? Who is the Holy Spirit speaking to right now? Back in 1986, I was sitting in Allegheny Center in Pittsburgh. I was sitting towards the back, minding my own business. I wasn't hurting anybody. I just was listening to Dave Arnold, just like you're listening to me. Dave Arnold was a missionary in Cotovar. And he was saying, I believe the Holy Spirit is calling somebody here to serve him. And as he said those words, I'm sitting back there, and I swear he had an electric buzzer on that chair. And he was hitting that buzzer as he said it. Because I'm thinking, my goodness, the Spirit of God is speaking to me. And the Spirit of God is saying, yes, Kevin, it's you. I'm thinking, oh, no, God, it's not me. I'll have this picture of dugout canoes going through the heart of Africa. And I'm thinking, no, that's not me. I'm not qualified. And God is saying, no, it's you. I want you to be obedient. And I'm thinking, I'm not qualified. Now, I have never known anybody who has stepped forward to the call of God and said, you know, I wasn't surprised God called me because I knew I was qualified. I was... It's never happened. What I've heard over and over and over again is, you know what? I felt so unworthy, so unqualified, but I knew God was calling me. I knew in my soul God was saying something, and I couldn't ignore it. You see, we don't qualify ourselves. The Holy Spirit qualifies us. The Holy Spirit equips us. The Holy Spirit gives us the gifts and what we need to accomplish the task that he has for us. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit. If God has called you, he will equip you. So again, who is he calling? You know if the Spirit of God is speaking to you. I'm not looking to put anybody on a guilt trip, but I do believe in this room God is at work. I believe the Spirit of God is alive as he was back when Jesus talked to his disciples. I believe he's here right now, and I believe he is speaking to a few of us. 
And I don't want you to leave this room without having the opportunity to respond. I'm not looking to embarrass anybody, but I do feel it's important as a celebration to say, yes, you know what? I don't know exactly what God is doing, but I do believe he has something for me, and I want the body to recognize that. So if you believe the Spirit of God is speaking to you right now, I just want you to stand up. Just stand up, and I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you, because I think it's important before the body that we all recognize what God is doing. Because it's easy to leave here, to go on, and to go on to life. But if God is saying something to you right now, just please stand up as a celebration of what God may be saying. Just give you a few seconds to consider it. And then I want to pray. And then afterwards, if you want to talk, I'm going to be up here. There'll be others to pray for you. But I want to thank you for having the courage to stand. This is a celebration, isn't it? Amen. Amen. That God is at work. God is doing something. God is not dead. God is alive. He wants us to reach the 82nd generation. Let us together close with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise you and worship you because we believe that this gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth and then you will come. And Lord, we believe that your spirit is at work, and I thank you and praise you for your work right here this day, speaking to the men and women that have stood up. I pray your blessing upon them. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will clarify in the days to come exactly what you have for them. I pray, Lord, that you will enable them to find time alone with you, to find counsel, and Lord, that they will clearly know that you have called them, and that you are equipping them, and that you are with them. Lord, may they walk in courage. May they not listen to the lies of the world. May they trust you. I pray your blessing upon them. I pray that you will use them for your glory. And I pray for all of us that we may be faithful, that we may be like the church in Smyrna. Lord, that we're not rich in the eyes of the world, but we're rich in your eyes. We have committed to this gospel. We are committed to reaching this world. And I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.